Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome to Greenlit. I'm Yay. Ryan Gibson. I'm Alex Collegian. Joined by Alex Collegian today. We're joined by screenwriter Chap Taylor, who wrote Changing Lanes and was worked on shows, huge shows like The Blacklist and uh, the devilishly handsome Chap Taylor. Thanks for joining us today, Chap. Among um, many other things. Yes. Yeah, glad to be here, guys. I, I was told the introduction was going to be brutally handsome, but I'll take either. <laughs> the brutally handsome Chap Taylor. Thanks for Thank joining you. us today, Chap. Glad so whenever... Here. Whenever we introduce guests, obviously you've had a, a, a long and strong and very exciting career, and that's what we're here to talk about, among other things. But I was thinking the other day how, well, actually, I'll be honest with you, Ryan and I were talking about what does it take to be a screenwriter in Hollywood, right? And the first answer is, I don't know. The second answer is a lot of scripts, right? Because you get slightly better every time you write one, and you've written a ton. Some, some and, people get slightly better. <laughs> Others, some people, some people digress. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, was that is that the first question? That my answer would be: What do you need to be a screenwriter? Is that no, 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 no? no. I'm an enormous tolerance for pain. Would oh be. no, no, ah. chap, chap. There'll be a lot of conjecture from Alex before to the we get to the actual question. Okay. So just just let him go on for All a right. bit. Right. You remember Candyland? It kind of twists and turns. Mm-hmm. So. My actual question is, so yes, but sure. Like I remember there was a famous John Wells quote, like, you know, how many scripts do I have to write? And he holds his hand like two feet off the air and he's like of this much, right? So my question to people who have worked in the business a long time is the projects that you've actually been paid for, let alone have gone to the screen, which you have, what would be the percentage of actual either treatments, pitches, scripts that never saw the light of day, whatever, specs that didn't sell? Is it like one, is it like 10 to one that we'll never see? Like the iceberg? Like what, what does that look like? I'm probably not a good example of that. And the reason for that is that the script that became Changing Lanes was probably the fourth or the fifth one that I wrote. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I know I'm a dick. Uh, Remember now, everyone, success in Hollywood is instant. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it was really easy for me and everyone likes me and I'm, I'm, (laughs) my wife is hot. No, uh, here's the good, like the good news is the scorecard is this. I've probably been paid to write or rewrite professionally over the last couple of decades, like three dozen feature and and, and television scripts. And of those changing lanes, I got credit on, on one feature movie. I had another independent movie that was made by some really interesting and by interesting, I mean, criminal, uh, independent producers. And that I took my name off of. And I was on a TV show that I had a couple of credits on. And I worked on probably three big ticket Hollywood movies that I did not get credit on. And the other 35 or 36, well, the other 31, I guess, uh, never got made. And then how many scripts did I write that just never turned into anything, even money? I mean, honestly, I, I think what, what you're really saying is how, how, how long do you have to write to be good? And the answer is you forever like it's you never like you if you're doing it right see um, this is now we'll reinforce the the perception that i'm a dick in some ways like working for hire which is what i did most of my career is not the best way to become to become a better writer because when you when somebody pays you to write in an, for instance an assignment i'm sure most of your 
audience probably knows. But essentially, the you know the three kind of the tracks are write something on spec, which means write a script uh, that for free, and then try and sell it to somebody. In which case, it's your original material, and you execute it exactly the way you want, or you know fill what's called an OWA or open writing assignment at a studio or a production company, which is essentially that they have a project either based on a book or a comic book or a TV series or somebody's idea that they want executed, in which case you are an employee and you're executing that. And, you know, the probably the third job track, at least in the features, is rewrites, is, is an existing script that someone has written, another writer has written, and you rewrite that. And of all those things, the one that, that the writer has the most control over and so has the most chance to grow as a writer or get better is, is obviously original material. For those people listening that, that are still developing their careers, you know, here's the good news. The good news is, the good news about being a writer is always this. Of all the jobs in the entertainment business, writer is the only one that you can do without someone else's permission, right? If you are a director, someone has to hire you. If you are an actor, someone has to hire you. If you are a director of photography or a costume designer or a production designer, someone has to hire you. If you are a producer, you know, you either have to invest your own money or get somebody else's. As a screenwriter, all you need is a, is a laptop or a legal pad and an idea and a lot of work. I've been very, very fortunate. And that's not to say that there aren't constant, you know, that there have been a lot of challenges and a lot of frustrations because I was, as I said earlier, but I'm serious, like to be a screenwriter, to be a writer in general, you have to have a very high tolerance for pain. But to be a screenwriter is to, is to work on things that are not finished products. Like when you are a novelist or a poet, what you write is the end product. When you are a screenwriter or a playwright, you're writing a blueprint that someone, that, that actually in case of a film, hundreds of other people have to execute. And so you are completely at their mercy once you turn that thing in. Absolutely. Yeah, that's probably more, more words than you need it. You never stop. Like if if you this is this is what I'm trying to get around to. The only people who should do that are people that have to. People become screenwriters. They become writers. Become artists because they have to. Because they cannot imagine doing. They can't do anything else. They don't want to do anything else. They'll take another job to support themselves while they do it. And so, if you really care about being a writer or a screenwriter that much, then probably you you should care about it enough to just keep trying to get better. And you learn with every script. Even if that, even if that's why writing a script that's really bad. I mean, the last three scripts that I wrote, and I've been doing this a long time. I, I had two two feature assignments, and I just wrote one on spec, and the spec script, and one of the jobs that I did, which was kind of my dream project, turned out very well in my opinion. And the 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 other job that I had that I was hired to do that I put a lot of effort and time in, and I've been doing this a long time. It just didn't it just didn't work. And as the writer, that's number one, that's my responsibility and my fault. But I don't know what I could have done differently. I just didn't, it just didn't click. It didn't work. And I've been doing this a long time, but I took, there were lessons I took from that. I'm sure that the people who paid me would have preferred I did it on my own dime, but I'm a better writer now than I've ever been. And I hope I keep getting better because it's just a, it's an, it's an eternal process. Yeah. Lawrence Kasdan said, uh, being a writer is like having homework for the rest of your life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When would you say you first had that sort of writer's mentality? Like how old were you? Did you always observe the world and take notes or were you writing stories in school? I was always 
a storyteller, which is a polite way of saying that I was always full of shit and lying to people. Um, <laughs> it's just later I learned how to get paid for it. I, this is a true story. I was in, I was what was once colloquially termed a juvenile delinquent. And I was in high school and I was in high school so long ago that they had a typing class. They used to teach kids how to type. Yeah. And, uh, I was in typing class and there was a kid sitting across from me and he was drawing what appeared to be like little cartoons. And I asked him, what are you doing? He said, I'm drawing storyboards. I said, what are storyboards? He said, well, they're a, they're a cell of animation. That's a representation of a, of a scene in a movie. And what he did, you know, this is in high school. He, on the weekends with his friends, he made super eight zombie pictures and he particularly was interested in special effects and he was a Mormon kid. So there was no kissing in his movies, but there were exploding oatmeal brains that looked pretty good for a, for a high school Super 8 movie. <laughs> and his ambition was he was going to go to BYU. He was going to go to BYU and be a film director. And I said, that's a, that's a job? Like, being a director is a job? He's like, yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to BYU Film School and I'll be a director. And at that, that moment, I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a filmmaker too. Nice. And uh, as Alex knows, because we went together, I ultimately, after a lot of misadventures, ended up at NYU Film School. And to be a director, but honestly, and maybe someday I will direct, I really found, I, I just kind of ended up writing uh, because it was something that, again, that I could do without other people's permission. Like I didn't, I didn't need to raise money. I just needed a, an idea and a lot of hard work. So you sort of waxed over the, the fun parts though. So uh, you're from Seattle originally, right? Chap. I am. Uh, yeah. I, I was born in Seattle, Washington. I lived in Seattle, Washington until I was 18. I went in the service. I was in the army for a few years. Uh, I worked on fishing. That part of the, was that part of the juvenile delinquency? Like join or, or are you going to? He's kind of, yeah. I mean, I didn't have a lot of other options at that point. Okay. Um, and so I ended up, I joined the army. I was in Korea for a year. I was in the demilitarized zone. I went, jumped out of airplanes. I was in the 82nd airborne. And then when I got out of the service, I worked in Alaska and on fishing trawlers for about 18 months and went to a little state school in Washington state. So that kind of sounds like a John Rambo homecoming, right? You said you served and then you kind of floated around for a while. I was walking in this little town in Washington state and Brian Dennehy just kept fucking with me. (laughs) And I'm like, you don't want to quit fucking with me, man. I got this sewing kit and I will take down the whole, the whole city with this sewing kit. But he's Brian Dennehy. He didn't fucking listen to me. He just kept spraying me with the hose. Anyway, with all due respect, I mean, we'll, we'll go, we'll go where you want to go, but I'm dying to hear about being in the 82nd airborne, frankly. I mean, so you're a kid in Seattle, you may or may not know what you want to do. You have this glimpse of hope, like maybe I'll try that, but I'm assuming what you need the GI bill. So you're, is that your path at that point? Like I'm going to go to the army. I'm going to get the GI bill. I'm going to go to film school. Is that in your heart right then? Or are you still kind of searching? No, no, yeah, no. were you like, I'm going to use the army to get to film school? Was no. that on the top of Chap Taylor's? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chap Taylor's lists were. Uh, I'm going to go to Korea and raise some hell. Get the fuck out of Seattle. You know, stop living in my mom's attic. Uh, you want to know the truth? Here, this is this is the truth. Uh, everyone in my family has been in the service. We have served, you know, for, for generations. Uh, none of us were all that impressive, but we were all there. and. Uh, I went and I saw, I was just bumming around. I had burned all my bridges. I, I was not, you know, my teenage years were not good ones. And I went and saw the movie Platoon, obviously that Oliver Stone directed and wrote about his experiences in Vietnam. 
And yes. uh, prior, you know, there, there's since then there's been Saving Private Ryan and some pretty, some pretty realistic and and kind of shocking and 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 disturbing depictions of combat dramatically. But at that time, like you know, the the night attack in Platoon and the experiences they were depicted in that movie in, in Platoon was the closest that I had ever seen as a, you know, as an 18 year old punk kid who didn't know anything to what it was like to be in combat. And I left the theater disturbed that there were people walking around with that experience and I didn't have it. I want to underline, I was fortunate enough to serve during peacetime. So that wasn't, I didn't see combat till I moved to New York. But um, bump. Yeah. Well, it's David, David Dinkins, New York. It was David Dinkins, New York. That's a different story. So you really were just the, the angry young man. looking yeah. for a, Yeah. I knew I, I didn't, what it wasn't clearly articulated in my mind. I had, I knew that I wanted to be, I did, Never I is. wrote, you know, and I wanted to write. And probably what I really wanted to do was probably wanted to be a really famous debauched novelist. And then, you know, win the Pulitzer and die like, yeah. uh, like Dylan Thomas. That's probably was my, as, but as, as well as thought out as it was. But I knew that I also had to be Hemingway. So I knew I needed like a resume and I had nothing better to do. And, uh, and I did come from a patriotic family and I, I saw this movie and I'm like, oh, I'll join the army. And so I did. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You saw Platoon and then, and then yeah. wanted to join the Army? Yeah, that's exactly wow. what happened, yes. And do you think those experiences, Chap, helped kind of fortify your imagination or your, did it add to your, like, writing cachet? That's absolutely how I got into NYU. The only reason I got into NYU is because I was a veteran, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I think Alex knows Kevin Cooper. Maybe you'll have Kevin Cooper on at some point. But there were a thousand people in undergrad at NYU and Tisch School of the Arts, the film school had a thousand students and it was me and one other guy who had been in the service. Wow. It's certainly, and Alex may back me up on this. So when you get to like, we got, I got to NYU. And so I was, you know, three or four years older than the other kids there because I had been in the service and then I had, I had worked and I had transferred from a little state school. So being a writer, being any kind of writer, any kind of storyteller your only is it's all it's your imagination, but it's imagination has to draw from something. Yeah, there you go. And having been somewhere and done something and experienced some stuff that probably a lot of kids had not. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's different now because there's so many more, particularly in television, obviously, with all of the different kind of voices in television, people are drawing on experiences they've had, like Lena Waith the Chai, like just you can go down the list of now it's it's a much more open marketplace for difference. In fact, it's it's, you know, it, that's what's sought out as a different kind of voice or a different background. At the time, and this is the mid-90s, these are just kids who'd grown up watching Spielberg movies. All, their only frame of reference was, was movies and other television shows. And yeah, the that's cool great. ones, you know, the cool ones wanted to be Scorsese or the Coen brothers, and the broad ones wanted to be Spielberg, but they, had, but they only knew other movies. Yeah, they were all veal, like myself included. I mean, it's funny you said your entire family for generations has served in the military. You know, of course, my head goes to the the montage of uh, Lieutenant Dan and all his forebears that <laughs> yep. died one after another yep. in various American incursions. Correct. Yeah, mine would be uh, <laughs> the the same the same montage, but smart enough to to serve like between the wars. <laughs> Got it. Got it. a lot of like digging ditches and uh, target practice. So that's right. I remember when I met you, you did vibe a lot different than the rest of us. You were older and you just carried yourself differently. We were a bunch of just nerds with ponytails and such. 
But uh, okay, so take me through it. You're like filling out an application at you know some checkpoint and uh... no, I went. I mean, I had come back. I came back. I got out of the service. You know, the day after I got home, I went up to Alaska and worked and started working on fishing trawlers. And then I kind of interspaced. I would go to school for a couple of quarters, and then I would work do a month or two in Alaska making money mm-hmm. to go to school. And then after a year, because my grades in, in um, high school were, were non-existent. And so I needed obviously to get my, to improve my transcript to hope to go to NYU. And I had decided to go to NYU. And at that point, I didn't really have a plan B. It, I didn't know how challenging any of this stuff was. I was really blessed with ignorance as I have been most of my life. And uh, I went to the went to the little state school and uh, I got good grades because I was paying my own way through school and on the GI Bill. And, uh, and then I applied and got into NYU. Was there a reason why you specifically picked NYU? Because I was a New York guy and not an LA guy. You know, at that point, the big three were like, the big three, the big same big three they are now, which is NYU and USC and UCLA. And I didn't know what the fuck AFI was. And, you know, Scorsese had gone to NYU and New York City was New York City. And LA was LA. And so, of course, I fancied myself an artist and a, and a, and a dark cigarette smoking, you know, urban crime thriller storyteller. So, you wanted to be Frank Sinatra. I did want to be Frank Sinatra for a long time. Yeah. Yes. So, and also Oliver Stone went there, not Oliver, for nothing. Yeah, he did. Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, like all the guys, the cool guys, the, the guys who had respect went to NYU. But, um, okay. So, just give me quick culture clash because you're a mountain man walking into this effete uh, institution, Correct. if I may, I'm right? Not, like, yeah, I'm not sure I would. I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I would describe myself as a mountain man, but certainly I had not. Uh, well, basically, your first act is kind of like Superman, right? You like uh-huh. fell out of the sky yeah. and then you like saved an oil saved, derrick. Yeah, air I lifted off a baby. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or wait, the baby, as a baby, I saved my dad. Yeah, that's correct. All, all I know is, as far as I can tell, the last time I saw you, you still have all your fingers. I have heard a lot of stories about Alaskan fishing trawlers. We were laughing that that was the go-to job for summer break yeah. for any kid that went to college in the 90s. They always had a little... Do you remember that, Ryan, at, uh, at Indiana? Did they have those ads in the back of the paper? Uh, yeah, they definitely Earn had... big money, easy money. Yeah. <laughs> Go to Alaska, see the world. <laughs> I spent one day on a lobster boat off the coast of Maine. I was baiting traps and I ended up, uh, you know, I'm looking at the uh, crew there that is like getting ready to throw the traps in. And the captain who was a girlfriend at the time, her father was a lobsterman. And uh, I'm baiting traps with uh, severed fish heads and I'm putting hooks through. What you do is you put the hook through the eyeball through the other eyeball and then you know you put meat a meat sack and stuff on there and uh i remember him looking back at me and giving me a thumbs up as we're trolling off into the uh atlantic ocean and or off the coast you know i put my hand on the vent of the uh, diesel engine and they specifically said don't put your hand on the diesel engine vent. And I did. And I, I think I melted the glove to my hand. And then they looked, they looked back at me and like their thumbs up and I gave it a thumbs up. My hand's on fire. And I, I continue to put the hook through the eye eyes of like these giant fish heads that the lobsters love to eat. These eyes are decomposing. So they're under pressure. 
And so I put the hook through the eye and the eye exploded and I had my mouth open because I was gasping for air, just any type of air. And the entire contents of the eyeball went into my mouth and I sucked it down my throat. And I, I was almost dying gagging of the salty eyeball mix in my mouth that I had swallowed. And uh, long story short, I spent one day on a lobster boat off the coast of Maine. <laughs> so that's my fishing trolling story. But that's, yeah. a pretty, that's a pretty good story. Uh, thank it's, you. It's actually pretty accurate to your first studio writing job, right? Uh, I, I, it was an eyeball juice that ended in my mouth, no. <laughs> and the fire was somewhere else. Yeah. Yes, yeah. But yes, it's pervasive. It's, it's like, it's, you know, you, it's, it's adventure. Easy money. It's adventure it, and it's, it's money. Has, and it is. And believe me, if you've watched any A&E show, you know how much of an adventure it is. I mean, the difference between your experiences, chap, and those of your contemporaries at NYU at the time must have seemed a little loud. I mean, I, I'm not I sure had, you're I a had, judging person, but no, I had different. No, I would. It's accurate to say we had different experiences, and, <laughs> and we continued to have different experiences. And, the, yes. and I, I worked, you know, I had to. I worked my way through school. I worked in a bar that was owned by guys that, uh, you know, were on the furthest outside reaches of organized crime. It was New York in the, in ninety. We were, I was there ninety one to ninety four. So it was the city was completely it still was a free for all. rough yeah. New York. Yeah, it was, yeah. A, it was an ugly firefight of a mess. And that, what bar were you at? I worked at a. I worked at a number of bars. The one that I started at was was on Eighth Street between. <laughs> it's the only bar that I've ever actually seen go out of business because they were so stupid. <laughs> it's, it was between Fifth and University on Eighth Street. It was all shoe stores. One pizza, one terrible pizzeria owned by an alcoholic Egyptian, and this bar. And uh, my my real point is this: that period will come back into play because that's because I just finished a script where that where that's the setting and the time, and and it ties into the to the Manischewitz Liberty Balance. But what I would say is this: if you want to be a writer, write. But the more you have experienced in life, the more you will have to draw on. You don't have to, I absolutely, there's a, there's kind of a scent in the air these days that you have to have a particular kind of experience to write a particular kind of story. So that only people, you know, only, only Latinx writers can write Latinx and I don't want to get into the politics of it or, or the people of color, you know, that you, I don't want to get into the, the politics of it other than to say this, a writer and you could, any writer who can, who has the imagination, the talent and is willing to put in the work can write anything they want. But your ability to write that convincingly and effectively and powerfully and honestly and being honest, in my opinion, is the most important quality a writer can have. Even if you're writing Detective Pikachu, being honest to those scenarios and those characters is the most important thing you can do. Your ability to do that, to put yourself in other people's shoes, people of different backgrounds or a different time period. You know, I'm not a I'm not an astronaut, I'm not a I'm not a knight, I'm not a vampire, but I could write all those things. But my ability to empathize with the characters is going to depend on my personal experiences. I may not have I may not have grown up in a particular neighborhood of a particular background. If I have been in a situation where I've experienced something similar, and I'm willing to, to put in the research and the time and the and, and get the authenticity from people who know, having experience in life is important to being a writer. There are a lot of talented people who are just uh, really talented people, and they. You know whether it's whether they're directors or their or their whatever their their artistic path is or whatever their job is, they're just so naturally talented and interesting and creative and imaginative that you can give them any story and they can make it great. But as a writer, 
in particular, because your job literally is filling in the lives of, is creating real characters, complex human beings that are going to be played to dramatic effect on screen, whatever that screen is, you know, being in the, being in the elbow in helped being on the demilitarized zone helped being in New York in 91 when, you know, to be perfectly honest, it was a, it was a terrifying place to live. And, uh, and there were, was a, a murder every, every four hours, like somebody got killed every four hours and you just didn't, it was just a different experience in that city than it is now. Thankfully, all that stuff is things you carried, carry with you as an, as an artist, along with all the, like, it doesn't have to be all like, you know, shooting smack in some cold water loft, like experiencing being in a, a, a wonderful relationship, having children, you know, owning a home or spending a week in a cabin in the woods. Like every experience you have is part of your paint box that you draw from good and bad. And if I had an advantage going into NYU. Yeah, but you're not, but you're not a literalist. I mean, you can write anything. I mean, I'm, I'm better at some things than others. As my ex-wife used to say, you're not funny. Don't write comedy. <laughs> uh, so I don't know that, it, that I'm not going to pretend that I can do anything, but, but that's, and I, and I, and let me, let me like really steer wide of the politics of it. But, but what I mean is the more experiences you have, the more convincingly you can, you can tell stories. And so while have I ever been a single mother? No. Have I been a, a parent who's had challenging moments and have I been, you know, hard up against the wall trying to figure out how to pay the rent? Yeah. All those things have happened to me. And have I been in trouble with the law? Sadly, yes. So I can apply all those things as a writer. And if I hadn't had those experiences, if I was one of those kids, you know, who who showed up at film school from West Side of Los Angeles or or Greenwich, Connecticut, or and no offense to any of those places, it just helps to have life experience, whatever that is. And then it's your job to take your life experience and to use both your imagination and put in the hard work of doing the research and make sure you're getting it right and translate that into stories about other people. That to me is, yeah. is, is what it is to be a writer. And it's absolutely more challenging to do that without having lived a little, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and, and your job is really like David Fincher says, conveying emotions to strangers, yes. right? Our emotions are pretty universal. That's the good news about the human condition right now is that everybody's felt fear. Everybody's felt happiness, et cetera. It's your job to, maybe attach that emotional bank that you've built to a different character than yourself, but apply the truth of the emotion into the specific of the fiction, right? Yeah. And I want to be really, I want to really underline and be, and be clear that I think that it's a, absolutely a positive and necessary change that the number yeah. of like how many in the world doesn't really need more stories about like white cops three days before retirement. There are some really great examples of that. I love some of those movies. But the fact that people of all different backgrounds and different orientations and different ethnic and racial backgrounds and different economic backgrounds and different, you know, we're all kind of finding our way. And those are all important and valuable things and they should happen. My concern, such as it is, and I also understand that given the nature of speaking, you know, kind of of the mainstream film industry or the mainstream Hollywood, you want to call it, you know. The, the types of stories that got told were limited and the people who got to tell them were even more limited. So there were lots of examples of, hey, we'll make a you know, film about natives and the white guy will save the natives. Or today, you know, we'll teach, well, Tom Cruise will teach the samurai how to die with honor, right? So 
that's probably in the past and for good reason. My favorite was when Kevin Klein taught Stephen Biko how to be a patriot. Correct. And he needed that lesson, as we all know. Yeah, that's not a movie that's going to get made now. Now you're going to make the story of Stephen Biko or other important figures of color or different figures in the developing world or different figures that would not have got that kind of exposure or whose stories would have been told. Like, yeah, who's the, who's the white friend, right? Who's the, who's the male authority figure that we can tell this through? And that's, that's changed. That's good. But I guess what, and I'll wrap up with this, like this part is any writer of any background who has talent and life experience that's applicable and is willing, and this is, let me underline this especially, willing to go do the work, get on the street and be in the community and talk to the people who know, if you're willing to do all those, those things and you have talent and imagination, then we should all as writers, given all those things that I've mentioned, have the opportunity to, to take a crack at it, I believe. When we come back, we're going to get into Chap's greenlit moment where he transforms himself into a real boy and gets a job in the big Hollywood machine and all the funny anecdotes thereof. So we will be back in a moment. This is Greenlit. I am Alex Collegian with Ryan Gibson, and we're talking to esteemed screenwriter and filmmaker Chap Taylor. Okay, so we're back with Greenlit. We're here talking to Chap Taylor, esteemed screenwriter, and now television screenwriter as well. And you guys were talking about a cool subject about inspiration. The single biggest influence on me as a writer in terms of how I I write both mechanically and uh, the biggest influences on me are, are newspaper writers. Pete Hamill in particular, you know, Jimmy Breslin. There was an old time guy named, named Jimmy Cannon, Joseph Mitchell guys who lived in the city with people and who told their stories in New York in the early nineties was, and I, and I will sound like an old man when I say this and I don't give a fuck. There was something that was going away in the distance and you just catch a glimpse of it going around the corner and the city changed because it became much more expensive and it became much safer and having become much safer became much more affluent and having become much more affluent became much less diverse, both in terms of, just in terms of who could afford to live there. The city that we caught the end of is a city that had, I mean, it still has three daily papers. It had a fourth because Newsday had an edition there. And the columnists for those papers, the kind of Jimmy Breslin's of the world and the Pete Hamill's of the world, went out and told, there's a great documentary right now, I think on Netflix, and it's called Deadline Poets about Breslin and, and Pete Hamill. Just, it's really good. But, it's a good but they told stories like that. And that's what it, obviously yeah. what a screenwriter does. Ultimately, no matter what, is tell a story about a person. And those guys did it on a regular basis and had to get into the kind of evocative, colorful details of a human being in a very short amount of space because, you know, a column is a few thousand words max. And that's very applicable to screenwriting to, in, in a few lines of description, tell us who that person is perhaps by a piece of an item of clothing they're wearing or a physical characteristic or how they carry themselves or the way they deliver their dialogue or a piece of jewelry or whatever it is, the way their hair is cut, like in a few simple details convey to the reader who that man or woman is and what their background is and what they bring, how to shade what you're about to hear or see. I think the ink and paper guys also 
brought, you know, one thing that um, when we were talking to Tony is in your writing, you have to just simplify, simplify, simplify. Yeah, I've had side conversations with him and cleaner, 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 yep. easier. Easy, like the page should have this look of clean, like it should be clean. If you ever read one of Tony's scripts, it, you know, it, it's like he's allergic to ink. It's as much, much right. white as he can get on the page. But he's right. But to the point of newspaper guys, the the ink and paper guys, they had like 3,000 words and they had to tell, they had to paint this picture with only a certain amount of words. And there's some, there's a real art to what they did. And I think people could, if you're listening to this, go back and read Breslin and read these guys who wrote articles at this time period because they not only had to get on the street and be with these folks and tell these really interesting, sometimes really seedy city stories for a city that was getting ready to turn the corner. It's interesting that, you know, the papers went away. The whole newspaper industry started going away because I think these stories were an important part of the beat of the city. and. You know, people cared. People picked up papers every day, yeah. and that that was a part of it. And I and I think you do yourself a disservice if you don't go back and read just how succinct a lot of these guys wrote. They were just the clarity, yeah. and they didn't. They can't waste words because you can't waste ink because you can't waste pages because pages are money, and newspapers were already operating on a razor thin edge at times. So yeah. uh, it's really interesting that you you were inspired by their work. For every reason you just said, the necessity of capturing the character of a place and a person in a very short space of time in an evocative way that the reader will immediately understand. And the dialogue, you know, the kind of carefully edited, colorful dialogue that sounds like the person without all of the ands and ums and buts and thes and like mans, which people really use in their, in their daily speech, but delivering yeah. a version that immediately captures the flavor and the identity of that character yeah that's all it's just new it's just newspaper writing it's just it's just beat writers i, lo- I like that influence of yours so i think chap going into the next segment is that how do you bridge from going to nyu to your first your foray into working inside the machine to that moment when you're like have I made it? Am I making it? Is this, is this, am I made? You know, that, not that you ever, not that you ever are, but that moment you can reach back to and think, wow, I, I I can't believe I'm standing here right now when I was on a fishing troller two or three or five years ago. Yeah. I mean, to first speak to yes, whether you ever feel secure. No, No, you know, I, I worked briefly with Richard Donner and, uh, later in his life, we've done something that didn't happen, but he, Still director, yeah, director of all the lethal weapons and Superman and a million other things, uh, you know, kind of right. the definition of a, of one of the most successful kind of studio. A main yeah, guy. And he, was, and he was a big ex Marine. He was a big man. There's actually a lot of, I've run into a lot of ex military people in my travels. Actually, I don't know if there's a lot in the film business, but there used to be more just because every, every grown man used to, you know, a large percentage uh, had served in the military and Donner, you know, came up in the sixties, fifties and sixties. But my, my point is he was talking about an earlier writer strike and this would have been in the mid eighties, uh, when he had already directed a bunch of supermans and other things. And he was obviously, a, he was at that point already a very wealthy man. And, uh, 
when he heard there was going to be a strike, he had just bought himself a new Mercedes and he took it back to the dealer, he told me. Because he was afraid that, you know, that there was going to be a strike and he couldn't, that the car would be an unnecessary luxury that he couldn't afford. Now he was, I'm, I'm quite certain, already a multimillionaire at that point. <laughs> a multimillionaire. But, he, but that's when he yeah. came up. Like he, he came up, the, you know, he <laughs> came from a tough background. And also, given the nature of the business, he just didn't feel like he was secure enough having directed, you know, a couple of Superman movies and wherever else uh, to keep this fancy car. And that's, you know... Success is fleeting. It is, and, it, you know, it depends on what your metric of success is, but certainly, I, I, speaking for myself, I don't feel secure in any sense. Yeah. I went to film school. I, I got out of film school. I worked full-time in school, and then I worked full-time after I got out. And there were, you know, here's something I think, I hope that will be useful to, to your listeners. Uh, like, you know, so I graduated from NYU film school. There were a lot of guys and, and gals that, that graduated from NYU film school. There was kind of two paths. One was, well, I'm a director now, right? I haven't gotten out of film school. And guys had cards printed up that said, you know, Leon Banks, director. And uh, that's what they did. And the other path was to, to go try and find any job in the industry and as a foothold. I got I started working as a PA. I started working as a production assistant on sets around New York City. And you can't, you know, support yourself doing that. So I would work. I worked as the Midnight Bellman, Tony Jeswinski and I. So Tony and I worked at the Morgan's Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. We had the midnight shift. I would sneak out early from the midnight shift. I would go so I could, you know, I'd be at the set at 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever it was. I worked as a PA. I did, you know, a couple of Woody Allen pictures. I did the New York portions of, I worked for some assistant directors who. Wait a minute, wait a minute. One thing at a time. Woody Allen, go. Uh, Woody Allen had constructed a world for himself that consisted of about 40 square blocks on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And um, he didn't like change. Um. He had a particular story in mind. He told it over and over again. He was always the star, even if he was being played by John Cusack or Sean Penn or Ed Norton, whoever eventually replaced him when he got too old. But he, you know, he, uh, I, I want to be careful how I say this because he's Woody Allen. He did things exactly the way he wanted to do them. He made a movie every year. This is how insane it, it, it was for anyone who knows motion pictures. Woody Allen, until very recently, made one movie a year. What that meant was that he spent three months writing a script, three months in pre-production, three months shooting the picture, and three months editing the picture, and then he started all over again. And he did that every year. That is insanity. And on that schedule derived a lot of very good uh, films. Not so yeah, good. He's, Hannah and their Hannah and her sisters. That was that that era. I'm not. Right? See, I'm not a good guy. I to me, it, okay. it's kind of the Sid, it's the Sidney Lumet model. Like if you make 40 movies, yeah. and he's a much better director than Sidney Lumet. But if you make 40, wow, hold on, them's fighting words. Go on. No, <laughs> no, but like you make. How do we do it? Volume. Yeah, exactly. Like if you make 40 movies, Robert Altman. Like I'm not an Altman fan, right? Altman made how many fucking movies? Two of them are genius. Four of them are pretty good. 20 of them are shit. And how many Playhouse 90s did Dick Donner and all those well, they, guys do? Those in, get, yeah. in Heimer, that whole era, uh, right? I, I, they were one, doing the last life. one of the movies and, and, the, and the place I got my break was I, I worked as a PA on the remake of Sabrina, 
Is that with uh, Harrison Ford? Harrison Pollock. Ford. Harrison Ford. Um, Greg Kinnear. Yeah. Right. And directed, directed Sidney Pollack, Sidney right? Pollack was, who is, was a, a gentleman to the core of his being. I really like, I really like him. He was a, he was a really, he was a really decent man who had spent his career, you know, as a successful, he started as an actor and for him, everything was, had to be a love story. So whether it was three days of the condor or the firm or whatever it was he did out of Africa, he didn't, he didn't know how to direct it until he understood what the love story was. But to, to your reference of Playhouse 90, you know, he had come up doing television and he once said to us on the set, you know, they had, sh- they used to shoot like 15 pages a day. Oh my God. Well, you know, you know, whatever is shooting a Playhouse 90 and, a, you know, 15 pages a day. And he was referring to actors in general, but he's like, if we get three, you know, these people can't do more than three pages. They wouldn't know what to do with themselves. By the way, Sid, by the way, <laughs> Sidney Pollack's an Indiana guy. Yep. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just saying. He met, was he referring to modern filming yes. actors that yeah. couldn't handle? Yeah, <laughs> well, the whole. I think he was referring to the whole process. Like it had just become so elaborate and so detailed right. and so top heavy that it was just impossible. Like there was no way that a studio movie you could you could move that fast. Yeah, you worked as a PA for some pretty heavy hitters. Then the New York film community was much smaller then. It's it's much larger now because there's just much more production and more of it shot on location. In the '90s, especially the early '90s, New York City was a pretty tough place. Uh, it was very expensive to shoot in. The unions were tough. And they just, you know, like we did the New York portions of, of the giant Schwarzenegger movie Eraser or Daylight or Die Hard 3 I worked on. And what would happen is they would come to town for a week or three days or eight days and get their exteriors and then they'll get the hell out of town because right. it was just too expensive and too tough and the unions were too tough and, and all the rest of it. And that was John McTiernan, right? Yeah. He came back yeah, for yeah, the John third McTiernan. But the upside was that there was, if you worked, that's what I was saying about Woody Allen. Like, he had the same crew. It, it, was, it was hereditary. Like, you, and still is as far as I know, like, there's a, a local of the Teamsters that does all the film shoots, and it's one of those closed book locals where you have to be born into it. Like, you're, when you turn 18, your dad gives you your members, your, your union book, and that's it. And guys shape up with that union for twenty years, and can't are never going to be members because it's such a it's such a lucrative lifestyle for guys who are who are blue collar guys. But Woody Allen, like he he just didn't like a lot of he didn't like change, and he didn't want different faces around him. It made him uncomfortable. So he had the same, and because he shot a movie every year, like you could block off if you were a, a, a you know a film craftsman below the line, if you were the electric department, whatever it was, camera department. As long as you were in that crew, you knew that you were going to work, you know, three months a year plus a month prep plus a month. You know, you were going to book four and a half months a year just working for Woody Allen every single year. And are these guys working the way they want? So like nine to five with tea time, and they don't give a damn about not the big you know, the like big movies. America. You know, the big movies were on it. We're on a studio. This is costing us money. Type of schedule. Woody Allen did whatever the fuck he wanted, and yes, it, he. He refused, this is the, you know, this is the nineties, but even in the night, they shot it, still shot on film, but they had what was called a video assist. So when you shot a film camera, 35 millimeter film camera, there was a tiny video camera, essentially married to the lens or to the barrel of the camera. And it would, it would film what the camera was seeing, what the film was seeing. So you still had to physically develop the film, but you could then immediately rewind the video of what you had shot and see if you liked it or not. It was the same camera movement, same you know, framing and you, and you can understand what was happening. 
Woody Allen had started directing movies in the late 60s, or early 70s. There had not been a video assist at that time. And so he refused to use it. And so what he did was you would shoot, you would go to a location. The light had to be a specific way he liked it. So you would stand around until it was the way he wanted it. He would shoot it. The film would then have to be developed and taken to his screening room, which I believe was in the Mark Hotel. And he had his own screening room and he watched it set to his own music. And then he would decide what was wrong with it. And then he would go shoot it again. With the exact same light at 309 on the... The whole film crew would go out, shoot whatever. It would then be developed. He would watch it a week or two later. He would decide what was wrong with it and he would just go shoot it again. And and because it was... Yeah. So you knew that anything you shot was going to be done again. That was one thing. And, And from one point of view... You could say that he was absolutely an artist and he intended to do it exactly the way he wanted to do and he was going to get exactly the effect that he wanted. The other version is he was doing it with other people's money and it was a grossly irresponsible way to do it. You know, he's Woody Allen. That's how he did it until, you know, until people stopped giving him money. Until he couldn't. And his business model was simple enough that he kept the budget low. The budgets were actually much larger than you would think because he, he was so inefficient and... The people he had the same crew for twenty years, so they all kept getting raises. He it, his his model was again uh, to make to repeat the joke. His model was volume. Like he had the same deal. His you know his famous cone. I'm trying to think who his agent was. He had the same agent for decades at ICM, and his deal was like three hundred and fifty grand against some percentage of the profits, and he had that deal forever. But he just made a movie every year, and he just would not. You know, he, he shot the same movie in the same locations with the same looking people forever because that's what he wanted to do. And pulled it off for longer the than, longer than anyone you would thought he was. Yes. You did mention, Chap, that there, where you got your first break, you were on set. Was that a Woody Allen film? No, or? no, no. I worked as a PA. I held other jobs at the same time. I worked as a PA, and then on the weekends, the little time I had left, I wrote, and I was writing screenplays, and I got a job on... This is a you want a green light moment. This is the moment when I when I uh, was given an opportunity that resulted in my career. I was working as a PA. We, the assistant directors I worked for got the job. The remake of Sabrina was produced by nice Scott Sabrina. Rudin, directed by Sidney Pollack, starred Harrison Ford. It was a remake of Billy Wilder picture, obviously. And on that set, Scott Rudin, who whatever his reputation may or have been or may be, was a very was very intimately involved in the daily production. He was there every day. He knew all the people because at that point in his career he was making a volume of movies and so he had so many movies coming in and out of new york that he largely used you know he would just roll crews from movie to movie so he knew the sound guy he knew the boom guy he knew the grips and it was a monday and my job that day was i was watching uh the set it was what was called a hot set meaning they had been shooting in the morning they had broken for lunch for continuity purposes everything had to stay where exactly where it was in that room couldn't be moved and somebody had to make sure of that. So my job was while everyone else went to lunch, I sat and, you know, I waited till everyone was gone and I sat in Sidney Pollack's folding chair and, uh, and watched the set. And Rudin was the first guy back from lunch and he came in and sat down and said, so, you know, what'd you do this weekend? And I said, oh, well, I was, I was working on my screenplay, Mr. Rudin, sir. And he said, let me read it. And I said, uh, okay. And I gave his assistant whatever I was working on at that time. Did you punch it up before you gave it to him or did you just give the assistant? what? <laughs> no, I didn't have it with me. I probably 
This is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. This is an unbelievable. Yeah, the president of show business came by to yeah. say hi, Jagger. Yeah. Keep keep going. Yeah. Keep going. Uh, I probably to answer your question. I don't remember, but my suspicion is probably that I did whatever work I could do very quickly and took advantage of it to <laughs> give it to his assistant. And it took him a few weeks to get to it, and uh, and he liked it. He liked it enough. Whatever I was doing at that time it wasn't for him. I'm sure it was some, you know, wannabe indie crime picture, but he liked the writing style and he introduced me to Craig Perry and Craig Perry at that time was his development executive. So Craig probably wrote it, uh, read it first or to, they read it. I think they used to read stuff. I don't, I don't recall. I mean, Spruden read it. I don't know if Craig read it or not. I do know that then Craig and I kind of sat down and developed a relationship and Craig connected me with my first manager. And then I wrote a spec action picture that Paramount almost bought. Rudin had a deal at Paramount at the time. They ultimately decided not to buy it, but off of that, they gave me what was called a blind deal, meaning essentially, you know, for this fixed scale amount of money, we'll find something for us to do together. Any, yeah, your your choice, right? Well, Rudin's choice. Like, we came, Craig and I sat down and wrote like, you know, 15 story ideas. And then Rudin picked a handful that he liked. And then we fleshed them out. And the one that he decided he liked most became uh, Changing Lanes, you know, five years later. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, your manager was Warren Zide? Was that? The- he and Perry were I assistants saw. together at, at ICM, or they knew, yeah, as assistants, they knew each other. You should have Zide on. Zide would be a fascinating guy to talk to. Warren was Robert Newman's assistant at ICM. Robert Newman is still, and at the time was a, a very successful uh, agent of directors, particularly independent directors. A man wandered into ICM's, you know, a a person of color, as they say now, wandered into ICM's offices and he had a box full of VC, VCR tapes of his home independent movie that he had made and he was trying to get people to look at it and nobody was particularly interested. And Zide was willing to watch it and he, did, he Zide, did not own a VCR. So he went to Craig Perry's apartment because Craig did have a VCR and they watched the VHS tape <laughs> and the VHS tape was El Mariachi and the, and the young man of color was Robert Rodriguez. That's part one of our interview with writer Chab Taylor. Next week, we continue our discussion about his career in film and television. We also talk about his love for the 1962 film, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, starring John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. Thank you for listening. Join Alex Collegian and I next Tuesday on How I Got Greenland. Next Chapter Podcasts.